Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james cheers to a great day and this ice cold corona you know what would make this day even better my grandma's carne asada throw in some music we can watch the game or we could keep it simple corona la vida mas fina get your corona at ordercorona.com relax responsibly corona extra beer imported by crown import chicago illinois Mike Evans, the author of Hangry, has indirectly fed me probably close to 5,000 meals. That's because he's the founder of Grubhub, which I have used. I use it almost every night, actually, to get food. So and I've been using it for, I feel like, a decade or more. So it was such a pleasure to talk to the person who, again, has indirectly fed me thousands of meals. And it's so interesting, all the ups and downs of starting a business. This, is, this conversation was a valuable business lesson for me. And he's a great guy, author of Hangry, founder of Grubhub, Mike Evans. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. I mean, how you got to choose. Like, I'm a Star Wars. I'm not a Star Trek. Yes, Star Wars or Star Trek. I got to say, like, 51% Star Trek, but only because when I was in high school, I would, like, fall asleep watching Deep Space Nine, like, every night, uh, just, like, and be exhausted at school. So, what did you, okay, in, with Star Trek, did you like uh, the original Star Trek, Next Generation, or Deep Space Nine the best? Or I mean, Voyager? Deep Space Nine was good. You know, the, the the TNG was good, but it was like the episodic nature of it where there's not like a thread between them. I liked the story arcs that you had yeah. in Deep Space Nine. S story yeah. arcs are kind of like 
you know, TV evolved into the story arcs, late 90s, early O's, and, and with Deep Space Nine, I think they kind of started things. Yeah, I loved it. So, but I mean, Star Wars, though, as Peter Thiel points out, Star Trek is communism. Everything is for free. And Star Wars is the original trilogy is based on Han Solo's debt to Jabba the Hutt. It's like totally capitalist. Uh, (laughs) All right. (laughs) Uh, Sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that rabid capitalism is necessarily the way to go either. So, so. Right. It's not necessarily the metric to judge a show. I like the kind of quasi-religious aspect of Star Wars myself, like the Force. It's so quasi, too. It's yeah. so not actually religion, but it's so close. I just have to you know, put it out there. We've been debating, is there any actual great Jedi in Star Wars? Oh, man, the Knights of the Old Republic video game, when you could go like neutral, that was great. That was All good right. stuff. That is <laughs> full nerd. You have, I, you I have passed the game. test. That's yes. full nerd on Star Wars. Yes. But Mike Evans, here's the problem with Star Trek, though, from your point of view. The food is like free. There's no delivery. It's just you 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 use that food thing and like, oh, I want a sandwich, and it just makes the sandwich for you. Yeah, you know, it's funny, like the like the way we interact with food, right? We don't go to a farm. Most of us don't go to a farm and pick up the food and cook it ourselves. And so there's sort of like this whole stack, right? Like there's there's farmers that make the food, right? And then and then at one point, like in the 30s, it started showing up at supermarkets and, or grocers and then supermarkets. And so they added this layer of convenience and quality, right? And then restaurants add a layer of convenience and quality on top of that. And then what we did with Grubhub is we added a layer of convenience on top of the restaurants. And through statistics, we added a layer of quality. We we promoted the best restaurants. And so um, it like that stack will always exist, even, even in Star Trek. Uh, that that stack that stack's going to exist. You can always get better quality food, and at higher convenience. Like, th- there's going to be some situation where that's the case. That, that's fascinating. I'm I'm going to write this down because this is like kind of a, a model for all businesses. Is that continually, you know, pick an industry and continually adding convenience to it. Yeah, and convenience is not just like the in, the the inverse of laziness, right? Like we at Grubhub, we had a. Um, we had a, a an army private in Afghanistan. Well, I don't know if he's a private. Actually, I don't know what his rank was. But he ordered a he ordered a delivery food for his wife for their anniversary. Like, and we've had new moms who are like I can't like I like I can't even think about food. And like convenience is is more than just the, the absence of laziness. It's it's uh, it's in, can be enriching in people's lives. I mean, definitely. If you think about it, I mean, Grubhub is part of the equation of why. We literally live like emperors now. I mean, I I can have like <laughs> a, a a great my favorite chef in the world make a meal, and then I use call I use Grubhub the website, and that chef he'll make his meal, and somebody will deliver the food to me, so I could watch on my movie sized TV screen some Spielberg movie as if I'm in the movies. Like you never have to move, and Grubhub is an important part of that equation. It's good to be the king. Yeah. We're all kings now because of that. I mean, I, yeah, I was but a not big emperors. User. Going back to Star Trek, like you don't want to, or Star Wars rather, you don't want to be the emperor. Oh man, I just made exactly. that mistake. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Very important. There's no emperor in yeah. Star Trek. It's all more yeah, Star Wars then. Yeah. Uh, so so okay. So Grubhub. I mean, you, Mike, you indirectly have fed me thousands of meals. I mean, I order food almost every single day. I I was a, in New York. I was a huge Seamless fan. You merged with Seamless. I mean, I've been ordering from Grubhub 
for like practically all my adult life, it feels like, even though it's just been the past, I don't know, 15 years or so. But what I found fascinating in your story though, is as you were starting up, I find it fascinating that you really didn't know what the business would be. You know, you wanted to make the food, the, the process of getting food easier for yourself and get rid of the inconvenience, but you went through so many kind of generations of figuring out what you were. Like what was the first Grubhub? Yeah, so the so the business started out as a delivery guide. I was hungry. I wanted a pizza. Um, I had talked about this idea with some coworkers, and, and one of whom was the the Matt, who ended up being my co-founder later on. Um, and like it was just a pain in the neck. Like all all I, I live in Chicago. All I had was like the menus that are dropped on my apartment stoop. Right, like I had like three of them. And I was like, man, the Yellow Pages presents this information alphabetically, which is useful to nobody. Exactly nobody wants to see this information alphabetically. So I'm like, I'm going to put these menus on a website for myself. At the time, I also like hated having a boss. So there was, it wasn't just the convenience. Like that was the pull. But I also was like sort of hunting around for something to do that, uh, that I could, I could make turn into a living, maybe pay off my school debt. I overshot. <laughs> I paid off my school debt and also changed the like made the country 1.4% fatter, right? But like um Do you know that yeah, statistic like, for that's sure? Like is that an actual statistic? No, like 97% of all statistics are fabricated. Right, so I'm, there you go. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I don't know how how much fatter. Can we just say like or or uh we just say started eating a lot more junk food when when the barriers to getting it decreased. But let me ask you this, so you were already getting the menus on your stoop. So what could be some of them, some like of them, two or three. So you wanted, yeah. you basically yeah. what wondered like, well, what are all the possibilities? Not just the ones that are on my stoop. I wanted some variety. That was a big driver of it. And so that's how it started. It started as a delivery information guide for me. And then it became a delivery information guide for me and my friends. And then it became for the whole city. And then I figured I was trying, uh, my, Matt, my partner sold the first restaurant. For like cheap, like 140 bucks. And so, so can I, let, let, I want to go understand this process. So you created this sort of a website for, of, of menus of, of restaurants that deliver, and this is in the Chicago area. And it was got popular enough just with this, that you started to rise up on, you know, the search engine. So Google, if I search Chicago delivery, somewhere. Hey, not Google, like Yahoo and Lycos and Excite. Yeah, Yahoo. Like Lycos. this is early. This is early. <laughs> Alta Vista. Yeah, before Google. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. That's right. And, and you're rising up, and then you figure, hey, this could be a business. And Matt, your your, your co-founder, he goes to a restaurant and say, hey, if you want a premium ranking on this little website we have, it's going to cost you 140 dollars. Someone agreed, and with that first restaurant, did they get more customers because of your listing? Yeah, so this was so so I didn't know the answer to that question at the time, which is what drove the second version of the of the business, right? So um I didn't know for them and I also didn't know for the next probably like 100 restaurants I signed up exactly how effective it was going to be. And, and so I I started adding features like coupons so that we could I could track that to to find out if that worked. Uh and then there was a moment when I when I realized, oh, well I could just code up this. This is a ridiculous thing I'm about to say. So I'll just own that right now. We'll, we'll, since I'm a software we'll developer. You. Yeah. Uh, I was like, I'm going to code up a telecom server and like buy a bunch of phone numbers from AT&T and I'll just have them come to my website and then they'll forward to the restaurants. I'll record the calls and then I can just prove how many orders they're getting so I can sell more 
$100 a month packages. Like that was the, that was my thinking. Um, and so, so I, because I was trying to, I was trying to prove to my customers that what they were buying was valuable. I was also trying to prove to myself that what I was selling was valuable because <laughs> I wasn't sure at the time. Uh, and so, um, and I'll talk about, you, you started this with the idea of like, it seems, it seems a little haphazard or, or random. But, and, but, but, but I don't but think it's haphazard a, or I think haphazard or random if if I'm going to theorize here, is the correct way to do things. I think people don't know what their business is when they start. And that's good. That's right. a good thing because you're creating something completely yeah. new. So I call it experimental more than haphazard. Uh, and I'll talk about the difference in a little bit. But um, but yeah, so I created this phone system. And then uh, Matt and I had this, had this lunch. In my mind, it's this like epic moment where we literally were like, wait a minute. Like I, so I'd signed up 100 restaurants. It took me like six months. Working like a like just working to the bone to get these restaurants signed, doing everything I could to get these restaurants signed up. And I was like, man, I'm gonna have to double the like I have to go from 100 restaurants to 200 restaurants to double the amount of revenue we have. Like it's gonna take forever to make even get back up to just making what I was making when I quit my software job. I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. And that's when we hit on the idea of like, why don't we charge for those orders that are coming through the phone system? I was like, yeah, that's like yes. We'll do that, and then we can. And then, you know, the subscriptions. The problem with them is they're they're like a broken clock. They're right twice a day and wrong the rest of the time. Like, some people are paying hundred bucks a month and they're only getting one order. That's obviously too much money. Some people are paying hundred bucks a month. They're getting two hundred orders. That's obviously not enough. And so, by charging per order, I was aligning my interests with the restaurants. And so, it became very important to me to then get the restaurants more orders so that I could make more money. Also, sales got a lot easier. Yeah, because you're not charging anything. You go to them and say, "Hey, it's no risk." Right. Yeah. And so it seems yeah. like you know you're you're going back and forth with the restaurants. You're having lots of conversations with the restaurants, and as your your the book you bought, you know, selling for dummies was telling you find out their needs and 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 so on. But it seemed to be really valuable that what you were learning was what they didn't want. So when they would say no to you. Sometimes, like you, you were mentioning in that critical conversation with Matt, you were mentioning how 25% of restaurants sometimes don't reorder with you, they're, they're advertised because they go out of business. And you said it was amazing how many restaurants go out of business. So part of the reasons why they wouldn't order from you became part of the incentive of how you would change the business. Like, okay, let's help them stay in business by getting them more orders and creating the business model around that. Yeah. Like, what were other reasons people wouldn't, I guess people wouldn't renew it with you because they weren't getting enough customers for the $140? So we call that voluntary attrition, and involuntary attrition is when the company, the restaurants is closed. And so the that issue of, like, voluntary attrition, like, actually, there's a whole set of anecdotes I didn't put in the book about this that I wish I could have. But, but one of the reasons was if it just took a long time to get their restaurant live on the website, sometimes they would cancel before we even had, got them their first order. And so um, just being treated well or efficiently or effectively was a big predictor about whether or not they'd stick around. But there were other reasons as well. But really ultimately it came down to they didn't want to bother, they didn't want to bother like dealing with me and dealing with me every month if it wasn't creating value. Like um when I moved to the transactional model, that bar dropped a lot. They they didn't have to see me. They got orders that they didn't, they got the CD, they could listen to themselves, they are tickled by that. And so our cancellation rate dropped a lot. But this idea of a hundred bucks a month, like how do I know it's working was sort of the biggest question. Like, I just don't know. I don't want all these bells and whistles. I want to know if it's working. And coupons had been up to that point the best way to track that. This crazy telecom thing idea did 
Yellow Pages could have made a fortune on that if they had thought about it in 1980, right? Like, but it was like too late in the process, in, in sort of the time frame, for that to be really the real answer. Because it ultimately ends up obviously, if you've used Grubhub, you know it's not about telephone orders; it's about no, and, online ordering. And 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 uh, as a restaurant owner told you, he doesn't like getting Eric Berkowitz from the Bagel Place uh, told you yeah. he didn't like getting too many phone calls because they're all calling at the same time, dinner time, so it's too annoying. Yeah, and. It takes a really long time to answer a phone. You need to have a person, and that's the only thing they can be doing if they're talking on the phone. So staffing a phone, staffing phones is very expensive. Because like what you can take like six orders, maybe 10 orders in an hour. Like if each or each call is six minutes long. And like that, like that vastly increases the cost of the business. And so and uh Okay, go ahead. Yeah, and and one of the things that I realized as I was doing this was like small business owners, they don't they don't want you to make your their lives easier. Like they don't want to pay for products to make their lives easier. They think correctly that they can handle the problems of their business. What they want is more business. And like, that's the problem. That's a hard thing to solve as a small business owner. And so every time, like in the years since I've, I probably heard a thousand different startup ideas pitched to me about helping restaurants, like better credit card processing or an easier way to track food, like ingredients or whatever. Like it basically, if it doesn't, drive more business to the restaurant, it's impossible to sell. Like, it's just so hard to sell. And so I learned that as I was selling selling advertising, was like, oh, this is, this is the thing that small businesses want. They want to sell more. Because like, if their food is good, like, and they, they can manage their kitchen, that's like, they can do those. Those two things are always within reach for, a, for an entrepreneur, for a small business owner. So with this guy, Eric Berkowitz, you saw he had a fax machine in the corner and- He's like, you're like, oh, instead of routing phone calls to the restaurants, people could fill out their order on Grubhub and then you just fax the order to the restaurant. Yes. And it was at that point, a year into this phone system that I built, that I had my big like facepalm moment where I literally smacked myself in the head and I was like, why didn't I start with online ordering? Like, of course, of course, online ordering is a better, better solution. And, uh, and then the business really took off. I made that switch and it was like instant. The business took off. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting... And, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring, so you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So I'm a restaurant and you would call me and say, look, we'll, you know, add, add business to you. And I say, oh, I don't want all the phone calls, whatever. And, and you say, no, 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 you just get a fax. And they already had delivery, right? And at least in the yeah. beginning of Grubhub, they already had their own. You would only approach restaurants that had delivery anyway, and they would have to figure out how to scale up their delivery. Yeah, so um, the first group of people that I signed up for online ordering were just the ones that I had had working on the phone system. And it was literally as simple as I called up and I, whoever answered the phone, I'd be like, what's your fax number? And then I, like, for some of the rest, I literally just started faxing them the orders. I didn't even ask. I was like, they want orders. They already are paying me for orders. They're not going to care. And most of, mo- like, almost all of the restaurants were like, well, that was, that's cool. Orders just started coming over my fax machine. And the phone call was just a, a they still got a phone call because they weren't used to it. And it just said, hey, we just got a Grubhub order on your fax machine. Type in the confirmation code at the bottom of the page. And like, because I built this, I had built this telecom system, so I was like, oh, I might as well just use it. By the way, that was Twilio. I made Twilio by accident. Like, that's uh, funny. Oops. <laughs> like, I also made Google Maps by accident with all the all the Google like trying to figure out how to turn an address into lat long, and like it didn't even dawn on me to like start either of those two businesses. I wanted to like stick to restaurants, and so th- I mean, but that happens. It's easy to have blind spots as you're going through it. And so I got a bunch of restaurants signed up on online ordering. And then the sales for the selling restaurants on the idea, um, it it wasn't it wasn't very challenging at that point. We were, um, it, we got to the point where where I was able to hire salespeople, and we were we were getting each salesperson was getting like thirty ish restaurants a month signed up, and so you know you, once we got up to five salespeople, like we're really starting to churn, like really getting getting big. And why would a restaurant say no then? Um, it's it's funny because I had this debate with like investment bankers at the IPO and they would say like, well, why don't, why don't companies have six or 10 or 20 online ordering platforms? 
And the reality is you just have, as a small business owner, you only have so much capacity to work with different vendors. Your time is valuable. And even like your space on the, on the counter for like fax machines and for phone lines, like you just don't want to deal with a lot of people. You want to deal with one or two that work well. And so uh, the only reason that restaurants would really say no consistently, there were two reasons that came up. One was we're too busy. We don't want more business, which I just didn't even know what to do with them. Like, <laughs> all right, well, I, okay. Uh-huh. Like, couldn't you expand into like the, the, the greeting card store next door? <laughs> like, I mean, is that so, that's a, the problem you can solve. Particularly for delivery, they don't even need to use the same kitchen. That's the kitchen in their restaurant. They could just open another kitchen somewhere. Uh oh, are you talking about ghost kitchens? Because that's a that's a whole topic. All like, right, we'll get to that later. Ghost kitchens are we'll a hot topic. <laughs> uh, people hate ghost kitchens, uh, but I actually agree with you. Like, what's the big deal if it's the right. same owner? Um, the second reason that people would not sign up was if somebody else got to them first, if another online ordering provider got to them first. But when you say another actually, online ordering provider, not just provider. one. Yeah, like. Uh, like order up or quick order or fast order or there was about a hundred different online ordering companies that that showed up around like the third year of our business. But did they um, copy your people, model? Were they faxing also orders? Yeah. So, yeah, so they just saw yeah. your model and they said, "Hey, let's put this model in Seattle." Uh, either that or it's a very obvious solution, and I just happened to hit it first. Like okay. one of the, I don't know that they even were copying me. Sometimes, um. You know, the first one that I really ran into that had really done it well and gotten some scale was Foodler in Boston. Um, and it was like, it was shocking when I, the first time a restaurant said, no, I'm not going to sign up because I already have online ordering. I was like, damn it. Like I was first. And now like that advantage is gone. Like I have to think of something better than just being, the, 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 that became t- like what I had built, which was innovative, be- quickly became table stakes, which by the way, is the nature of innovation. Like everyone copies your shit, everyone. And so the only true competitive differentiator is a culture of innovation where you're just staying ahead because uh, the, the bar just keeps raising. It never stops. Right. And so when you heard about Foodler, what was your, I mean, your initial reaction was just to compete on pricing, but that's, that's always a, a, a dead end in the long run. Yeah. Uh, that was my initial, like, I was just like, I just got to get in. I just got to get in a foot in the door. Um, and so I, I basically matched their price and then, um, and then, just started signing up restaurants and, and it was, uh, that was a big crisis moment for the company. We're like, what's our next innovation going to be? Like, what are we going to do? So we don't have to have a race to the bottom on price. Like how do we deliver? Huh, that was a pun. I didn't mean to do that. How do we deliver the, uh, the premium product, the, the product that's better than everybody else's. Um, and so that's, that's what like the next sort of iteration of the business became. And, and so what's that? So, um, it's it's more esoteric, but basically it's customer service. So it turns out that 14% of all delivery orders have some sort of problem with them. Or this was true in 2008 or 2009. I don't know what the statics, status is now. It's probably higher now because um, the drivers are, are gig economy. And so they, they're, not as, they're not as closely attached to the restaurants. And so there's probably higher errors or rates. But it was 14% at the time. And with something, you know, when people are hungry and like their kids are hungry and something goes wrong with an order... That is a real bad, real bad customer service situation. And so um, I learned I learned how to apologize. Uh, and this is, if you take nothing else from this podcast, this is the thing that's helpful in life. An apology is not, I'm sorry you feel that way. That's an accusation. That's not an apology. It's also, it doesn't stop at, hey, uh, I messed up, right? 
It also doesn't stop at, hey, I messed up. I'm going to make it right for you right now. A true apology is I messed up and I'm going to make it right. And I'm going to make sure that it never happens again in the future. And so we adopted that attitude at the company. What it does is it forces you to look at why problems are coming up. And you just don't want a mom who's trying to feed her kids, like, have a delivery order at an hour and 30 minutes out that slipped through the cracks who's just mad. Like, that is it. You you got to solve the problem before that happens. But where was Grubhub in the problem? Like, you're not delivering the food. You're just delivering the order to the restaurant. That was, you know... That was the initial response I had. Like when somebody would be like, Grubhub messed up my order. I'd be like, no, we didn't. The restaurant messed up your order. And so I had to make a choice. I was like, do I do the obvious thing where, I'm, where I educate the consumer that it's not my fault and I pass the buck? Um, you know, that's what airlines do with like how bad the experience is at, at the airport, right? Well, it's security. Like, well, you could probably yeah. make it better. Like you could probably make the experience better. But, the, but it's easier to pass the buck, right? Or we could say, all right, if you think it's my responsibility... I'm going to own that. I'm going to make it my responsibility, as ridiculous as that is. And like, let's see if this other company in Seattle copies that. Like, all right, let's go. Let's do it. And it turns out you can start solving the problem. The very easiest way to do it is there are some restaurants that have less complaints than others. Send them more orders. Like that's, it's a very simple like solution to the, like most problems is send the majority of orders to restaurants that do well, that perform well. And and so we started doing that. And then we also started sharing best practices with the restaurants that were struggling or in the middle. And so we started improving the quality of the experience in that way. And then we staffed a really um, a really effective customer service team with really good technology where like, if you called, we'd be like, hey, James, uh, I see you placed an order 52 minutes ago uh, from from Bill's PETA. I don't know why Bill has a PETA shop, but he does. <laughs> and and we're going we're gonna to text the driver and see where they are. And, and we'll text you back and let you know. And like, oh, and by the way, here's five bucks, like for your next order. You're a customer for life. We got you. Like when, when you when we answer the phone that way, like you're like, oh wow, all right, well, I guess the food will be here in ten minutes. And it deflates that feeling of being hangry. Uh, and so that like that's what we did. We leaned in and we and we won. Like there were a hundred competitors, and then they kept launching. Like Groupon launched a competitor, and Living Social launched a competitor, and like all these companies came along. And we just crushed them because we had customers that stuck with us forever. They went from ordering once a month in their life to twice a week. And they only ordered from Grubhub. And so we were getting people who were ordering 100 times a year. And like, it's, it, we just became a behemoth because we just were really good at keeping, custom, keeping both customers. And when I say customers, I mean both the restaurants and the diners. We like kept them because we provided a ton of value. And so that was like the next iteration of the business right there. And, and it... That was fun. That was like the golden age for me. Like it was so much fun to be, you know, signing up a thousand restaurants a month and like just making it more likely that those restaurants were going to stay in business because they signed up with us than than if they didn't. Like that was really satisfying. So it's it's interesting too, like that in each case, again, you're finding out what people, what people are, why people are not using you. So for instance, in this case, a customer might not use Grubhub because they keep ordering from a restaurant that is not delivering well, but they're blaming Grubhub. So the customer's not happy. So it's not good enough when the, if a customer, the customer doesn't call you and say, listen, I need you to start delivering better to me. They basically just stop using you. They, and, yeah, they ghost you. Right, and it's the same so, thing with restaurants. And so finding like, that out is hard. Yeah, and it seems like, I think I feel like a lot of businesses don't do this. They don't, 
research why people, they ask customers, what features would you like to see? But they never ask failures. Why aren't you using this anymore? Yeah, the person who did that at Grubhub, who introduced that concept to us was Josh Evnan, who's the president of the company I'm running now. Like we're, we're, we're a team now. And he called people who had ghosted us. He would call and say, like, what happened? What went wrong? And they'd say, ah, my Grubhub order was late or my Grubhub order was cold or my Grubhub order didn't have the Thai iced coffee that I ordered. And, and our first reaction to that was like, WTF, like, it's not our fault. And then our second reaction to that was like, you know what? The customer just told us what was wrong. Believe them, like, believe them. It's really hard to do. And, and the reason it's hard to do is that creating a startup and like innovating, there's an inherent paradox in it because you have to have the arrogance to say the world is broken in a way that only I can see and nobody else can fix it but me, which is a hugely arrogant thing to say. But then you have to have the humility that when your customers tell you who they are and tell you what's wrong, you have to believe them and you have to like check your feeling that like, I know how to fix this. And you have to be like, okay, I have to change what I'm doing. And that sort of, those two things don't play nice together. They are, they're two angry cats, like that just do not play nice together. That, and, but it, you need both arrogance and humility to, to innovate. And it's, it's infuriating sometimes. And, and it's it's the same with all the restaurants. Like initially, the restaurants wouldn't use you because the advertising model they just didn't like. And then restaurants might not use you because they were getting too many phone calls. So you switch to faxes. And then what's a later reason why restaurants wouldn't use you? Well, so restaurants wouldn't use you because they, they already were using a competitor of yours. So I'm wondering, what did you think of then in, in terms of um, like you decided then to focus on better customer experience did you, did you think of any other models like, oh, we'll be an aggregator of food orderers so it all gets routed through us and then we'll send to the restaurants? Or like, what were other solutions you were thinking of when you realized you had 100 competitors? Um, we didn't. We didn't. Every time a board meeting or an investor or somebody came along with an idea that said, you know what, you could also make money if you blank. I would say, no, this is a huge industry. And we're going to win it by doing it and it only and better than anyone else can. You know, Bill Gurley, who was on our board, he, when Living Social launched the online ordering product, product, he's like, you should be pissed. You should be just angry that this other CEO thinks as a side project, he can compete with you. And I, I did. I got riled up. I was like, no, this is all I do. And I do it. And because of that, I can do it better than anyone else. And so we focused. We just said, no, we're going to get more restaurants and we're going to get better for them and we're going to get better for the customer and we are going to close everything else out like every so um there's these systems in restaurants called uh point of sale systems pos systems and and that abbreviation fits very well and there was always this pressure to send our orders instead of to a fax machine to integrate with those systems and i'm like does it bring the restaurant more orders no does it make the experience better for customers no does it Make their restaurants' lives a little easier. Yes, I don't care. The only thing I care about is getting restaurants more orders. And so we just focused on that. We didn't get distracted. And so, like, what was the situation when you're going head to head with, like, let's say, Living Social or one of these platforms? And let's say they're even undercutting you in pricing. What was the situation where you won the the restaurant? There was a restaurant in Chicago, Pete's Pizza, where. Um, we were sending them $2 million worth of orders every year, and it was 60% of their business. Living Social had no chance, no chance to break into that. Like, we, we just 
literally delivered a better product. We delivered volume at a reasonable price. And so even if somebody undercut us, we'd be like, that's fine. We're not going to gouge our prices. We're also not going to go down. Like you can sign up with them or not, but we're going to give you a hundred times their volume. And, um, and so, you know, this is one of the lessons about competition is don't overreact. The, the only thing that you can do as a business leader about competition is you can look and see what they're doing and you can say, is there something here worth copying? Is there something here they're doing better than us? Um, and if not, just forget about them. Like you can't, you can't get over it. Like, because the best you can do is the best you can do. And worrying about what somebody else is doing, if you decide not to copy it, if it's better than copy it, if it's not better then like, great, you, like you've done everything you needed to do. And it's so hard because there's this, there's this terror that entrepreneurs have that somebody else is going to come and like steal their idea or do better at it or be first, or Google's going to like get into the business or Amazon's going to get into the business. And that's, a, that's a really strong fear. And sometimes it does happen. Um, but the solution to that is not, is, is to be better. Like the solution is, okay, well, I'm just going to be the, have the best product I can have so that it doesn't happen. Um, and so that's, that's, that was our approach. Well, and, and it seems like one, you know, one solution or, or a solution that, that kind of is the umbrella of that is to scale in two ways. One is horizontal where you add more restaurants and more markets. So this way more people are eager to work with you and, and they want to be, it's like your, your restaurant row analogy. Restaurant row is usually the street in every city where all the restaurants are. And you would think that would, you know, make things too competitive, but in fact, that's where all the customers go. And so they're more likely to go to your restaurant than a restaurant that's not in a restaurant row. So your so Grubhub became like restaurant row of the internet because you would scale so big in each city and in multiple cities and so on. But then you're also scaling vertically. Like you're not that you're adding services, but that you're deepening your service. Like you added the customer, you know, deeper customer service, for instance, and that uh, you know, edged out competition as well. Yeah, that's right. When we when we launched a new city. We would make sure to have it, it was we had to have eight percent of all of the restaurants in that area, and we had to have at least five cuisines on any zip code that anybody was searching. That was our rule. Mm -hmm. So we had to have variety and volume to start a city. And so we would literally would take salespeople from all the markets. We'd fly them all to one city for like a week, and we would go into every restaurant in Dallas, every restaurant, like uh, over the course of one week. And we would get to that like 10% level and we'd have enough cuisines. And even if we had two restaurants, if we had two restaurants that were like both equally good, so both equally good and the ranking was largely based on a combination of what they paid us and then some element of how, how well they treated their customers. But if we had two pizza restaurants that were the same, they'd get bumped for like a sushi restaurant and then a Mexican restaurant. We'd always make sure there was a variety of cuisine for the customer to create that restaurant row effect. So at some point you decide to scale by buying a company. So like Seamless, which was- Yeah, that was great. That, that, <laughs> it's really fun. That was my go-to delivery company of choice, which you guys then acquired. Like what, what was behind that? Yeah, so first we acquired Campus Food. So we got from, you know, I think we were in like 100 cities to like 400 cities by doing that, by getting into the college campuses. And then we got big enough that we were starting to go down the path towards an IPO. And then sort of we had this really big- tense moment where we had to cancel our IPO because we decided to merge with Seamless. And the whole reason we did it was, so you said you use Seamless, which means you lived in Manhattan, not just New yeah. York anywhere. You lived in Manhattan. Right. I know you did. Because if you lived in Brooklyn, you would have used Grubhub. Uh, and so right. uh, here's the problem. All the investment bankers 
live in Manhattan. And when you're going through an IPO, you have to have the investment bankers like you so that they buy your stock. And so they were really going to hinder our IPO because they were so big in Manhattan. And then because they couldn't, you know, because we had started to get this mass in a lot of these cities, they were having a really hard time breaking into all these other, these other cities that we we're in. And so it just became like this, well, if we're blocking you from an IPO and I'm blocking you, and, and I'm, you're blocking me from the IPO, maybe we could like bring this thing together. The thing that was shocking about it was they had been the enemy for so long. Like they were like, we literally wouldn't use the word seamless. And like in a, in a company meeting, if somebody's like, well, we really need to make this move seamlessly. I'd be like, do you mean frictionlessly? <laughs> like I was obnoxious about, but they weren't the enemy. They were solving the same problem we were. They were trying to help independent restaurants just like we were. And so once we realized that it was like, well, these people are great. I love working with them. And it was, it, the merger process was actually really satisfying that, that part of it, the, when we turns out we had redundant customer service teams and stuff, that was really challenging because we had to make, we had to reduce them. Um, but like working with the other people at the at the company was really great. And so so then you IPO and then you go one step further on the vertical scaling, which is you you started to add delivery yourself, right? Like what you, you know, some restaurants you're probably sending so much business they couldn't hire delivery uh, people fast enough. Yeah, and so um, after the merger, we we did the IPO, and it was. Um, it was shortly after that that I left. So most of like sort of the diving into the driver, the driver situation was after I left. So I can talk to the beginning of it, but at like at some point I'm just guessing what was happening mm-hmm. internally. But at the beginning of that conversation, what we were trying to do, the literal conversation was we need to make the rest of the country look like Manhattan because every restaurant in Manhattan delivers, every single one. Like you, you can't find a restaurant that doesn't deliver in Manhattan. How do we make that happen in St. Louis? And the only answer we could come up with is we need our own driver team. And so that's the path that we we were starting to think about. So even though you're not involved now, like, do you feel Uber Eats is the enemy now of Grubhub? Like, it seems like Uber Eats does a pretty good job as well of, you know, they have their own, like you say, it's more gig economy, so they're not as dedicated to the customer service. But that's not quite true because people would rate their deliveries and you would rate the drivers and, and so on. I would say that, this is, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, uh, but I would say that Grubhub and Uber Eats and DoorDash are enemies of themselves in the sense that, they're not very differentiated from each other. And so the only way that they can acquire customers is by, is by competing on like how much they spend for customer acquisition. And so all of like the, all those fees that you see when you use one of those services and, and the very high prices to the restaurants, almost all that money is just going to advertising. It's going to Google and Facebook and outdoor ads. And so like the ultimately what's going to happen is one of those three companies is going to double down on the quality of the product to the restaurants, the quality of the product to the drivers. And they're going to differentiate on that, and they're going to keep diners because they have a better product, and so they don't have to spend as much. And that's going to be one of the three of them is going to get. I'm sure they're all trying. One of them is going to figure it out. Um, but until that happens, uh, it's just a very expensive service because because they have to keep paying for advertising. What if they all combine? They should all just merge now. No, because then somebody else will show up, and then and then it'll be the same problem all over again. You you have to create value for your customers in the long, to to have a long-term competitive differentiator. Just being big isn't good enough. So so what would be another added convenience that could could be given to the customer or to the restaurant? 
Like where, where is convenience now needed? I mean, it's already pretty convenient, right? Like it's already, yeah, the food, I the love food it. just, the food just shows up. Um, I think that at this point, it's about reducing error rates. It's about making sure the food shows up warm, that like there aren't challenges associated with it. And, and honestly, like the fees have gotten a little bit out of hand. So I think that they're going to have to, there's a co- one of the companies going to have to figure that out. Um, beyond, you know, obviously Grubhub just did this big partnership with Amazon, which I think will be really valuable. Um, oh, I didn't know about that. Yeah. The, like, yeah, if you Grubhub Prime, you get free, uh, Amazon Prime, you get free Grubhub, uh, Grubhub like deliveries. But like that's uh, might be a deal with the devil, right? Like I don't know that you want to like hitch your wagon to Amazon. They don't have a like history of playing nice in the long term. I so, guess also Amazon guess could we'll use see. Grubhub deliverers to deliver other products other than food. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Maybe um, they seem to have their own pretty big logistics team. So, so what, what are you working on now? So. What excited you now? So I went through this whole process, right, and. And we talked a little bit early on about it being experimental, right? Um, and that's the nature of, of innovating and nature of creating a new company. But um, very, it was very goal-oriented, right? I, I went from, my goal was I wanted to pay off my school debt, I had 260 grand in school debt, to I wanted to create a company that helped independent restaurants compete against the big chains. And that's how I evaluated success, and that's why I think I was successful. And so I wanted to take that idea and extend it a little bit further. I wanted to find a company where the profit that we create and the benefit we create for the communities we work in couldn't be divorced, that the two were locked. It's called, it's a concept called mission lock. And so what I ended up with is it's really hard to like get a handy person at your house, like to show up for a small job. So, um, and so I created a company where, where we're solving that problem by having full, like, so you can use your phone to order a handy person to your house, uh, to have, a, have someone show up and fix something. But the difference is that the people who do the work are full-time employees with benefits, and we train them from scratch. So we're trying to increase the supply of tradespeople in the communities we serve. It, it's so interesting. So that's like that's like Thumbtack a little bit, but Thumbtack's more a gig economy. Yeah, and this is a this is a full-time employee thing. And and the key difference is we train people, right? So we've we've opened up this gender inclusive path into the trades. You don't just have to have an uncle who knows how to swing a hammer. Like you can come learn, and we pay you while you learn, and then you very quickly get good at. You know, first, a couple tasks, but we expand the tasks. So, like, it's pretty easy to f- train somebody that how to hold the other side of a TV when an expert's hanging up, like directing it. But then they pretty quickly progress into being able to fix drywall and handle doors and make the toilet stop running and things like that. And so, yeah, so we're just in- we're literally trying to increase the number of people entering the trades, um, which is is you can pick up any newspaper in the country and you can see that this is a problem that all the trade schools have closed. And so the so that so we're creating this big community benefit, but it also creates this really kick-ass experience in the in the customer's home, uh, and so that's what I'm doing right now. I'm trying to like both do good and do well at the same time. Uh, I am trying to make profit. Our business is try is a profitable business, um, a for-profit business, but but it creates like social value while it operates, and that's very much on purpose. No, and it sounds really great. And it sounds, you know, one one problem I'm hearing from thumbtack-like companies, and also this is true in the restaurant business, the hotel business, almost all the service businesses, is that they can't find, like thumbtack can't find electricians or plumbers or handymen. They're every, and restaurants can't find waiters, waitresses, you know, chefs, whatever. Where where did everybody go? Like where 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 did all the people who were doing these jobs go? Uh, they were doing them before the pandemic. The pandemic happened, and now none of these industries can hire people. So, the statement that I can't hire people because there's nobody there 
is false. The statement, I can't hire anybody at the rates I'm willing to pay, is true. And it's a, it's a really big difference. Like if you want to pay under a living wage to somebody and you're surprised that they, they're not jumping at the opportunity, like maybe you shouldn't be surprised. You know, one of the things is we've talked to venture capitalists about this new business. One of the challenges we usually get is, yeah, but everybody says you can't find workers. And we say, we're not having a problem. We're hiring people like crazy. And the reason is we're creating a career path with a lot of economic mobility. And people love that. Like there, it's not that there's nobody that wants to enter the trades. It's that it's that there's a barrier to entry in the trades and we're trying to remove that barrier. And people get paid a good wage to do it. Um, because they're, because, the, you know, even, even as a trainee, because they very quickly create so much value for homeowners that we can afford to pay them a good wage because we charge a premium for the product. Um, and so I, I, I like, I don't know where they went, but like the whining that I hear from business owners, like around, I can't get people like do better, pay more, like create a better work environment. Like pre pandemic, they were able to hire these people though. Like, do you think people just sort of woke up during the pandemic and said, oh, I, you know, getting paid what I was getting paid, I'll just, you know, cut my expenses accordingly and I don't have to work this job anymore. Or what, like what, what happened during the pandemic that, that changed employees' philosophy about this? I, I wonder if the stuff that happened in the pandemic in a lot of different ways isn't something new, but an accelerant of a trend that was already happening. You know, 15 years ago and 10 years ago, I would have other business owners complain to me about like millennials, like, oh, how do you get millennials to work? You know, kids these days. And I, I hate the kids these days argument because what I was finding was actually, if you take time to invest in people and if you take time to create, like, this is our values as a company, this is what we're trying to accomplish. And this is how you contribute to that. And and you have like, you take the time to invest in in performance, like performance conversations and how, to, how somebody can advance their career. They like the people, the the younger workers that I had, first job out of college, who we engaged with in that way, were our top performers. They worked really well. And it's part of a shift, like a sea change in attitudes about work where I'm not going to go work for a company for 30 years because that's the right thing to do. I'm going to go work somewhere that's fulfilling for me and that's aligned with my goals and values. And I think what happened during the pandemic is that concept, which was already sort of in, in the atmosphere, it accelerated. Um, like a lot of things accelerated in the pandemics, like like food delivery, for example. Uh, and so I think what we're seeing is 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 that coming to fruition, not a new thing. And so you, you mentioned you were talking to VCs with this new company. And I'm just curious, like, obviously you made a good amount of money with, with Grubhub. Was this easier to start a new company because you were able to, quote unquote, bootstrap a lot more easily? Because rather than you and your co-founder putting in $11,000 each, now you could self-fund for quite some time? Or do you feel there's some advantage to having VC money on board? I mean, I talk about this in the book that the reason I took the VC the first time, the thing that really convinced me was that I was going to learn. I was, it was going to make me grow as a person. Like I, I wanted uh, people to point out my blind spots. You know, if you're, if you're innovating and if you don't know what's going to work and you're trying things, one of the things you have to do is, first of all, you have to work really hard on the things you're trying, but you have to be clear-eyed and objective about if it's not working, stop doing it. And it can be so hard to do that for yourself when you're in it. And so having a board of directors and having investors who can see it from the outside and be like, are you sure you're working on the right things is incredibly valuable. Um, it helps you innovate because it helps you it helps you take chances if you're not second guessing yourself and if you surround yourself with people who can advise you and 
and and tell you if it's if it's working or not. And so that's that was true in 2006 when I took the first investment, and it's true uh, it's true in 2021 when we took our most recent investment. And I didn't want it just to be the Mike Show. I wanted it to be a company where like there was lots of perspective, lots of diverse perspectives in the room, telling all with an opinion on whether or not we're working on the right things. I mean, ultimately, I have to make the call and I have to follow my gut. But like having those extra data points is incredibly valuable. Well, uh, Mike Evans, author of the book, Hangry, A Startup Journey, founder of Grubhub. Again, thank you from the bottom of my heart for feeding me so much. <laughs> I, I mean, you've honestly been the solution when my wife, you know, she's an okay cook and everything. She's not listening to this podcast, but I really just like ordering from local restaurants every single day. So Grubhub feeds me all I'm the time. You. I'm with you. I use it. I use it so frequently still for like, what is this now? 20 years I've been ordering from Grubhub. I, was, I mean, I had the first account, so right. I've got to have like, I, I'm probably not even close to the top order anymore, but uh, no, I, might yeah, I use it twice a week. I'm, I, no, I'm like five times a week. You know who was? Video gamers. Uh, video gamers uh, would order six or seven times uh, more than anybody else. They'd order 20 times a week. Sometimes we had the, our, our highest order in 2011 was ordering four times a day, every, wow. every day. It's crazy. It's and it's because they never left their computer? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they just were on raids on World of Warcraft. Were they good? Like, were they making money from gaming or they just gamed all day and, and it didn't matter if they were good or not? I mean, like, we weren't, like, in the same clan on the video game, so I couldn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I Presumably, when you put that much time into something, you're an expert. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I, I learned a lot and good luck on this next venture. It sounds, sounds really exciting. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.